It's 12 and up with your host, Jonathan Malone, and guest host, Tense, and other people. 12 and up is a podcast about Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your host, Jonathan Malone, is the pastor of First Baptist Church in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. And tents are things that you go in when you want to be able to carry your house on your back or other things. This podcast is brought to you by that anxious moment in the middle of the night when you hear the rain start to fall and you look up at your tent and you see that it's just a very thin veneer of cloth that's keeping the rain from falling on you and you wonder, did I put enough seam sealer on the tent? Will I stay dry tonight? Tents. And we're back. All right, we're almost done. I promise we're almost done with the whole passage, the part, the wilderness edition on community and people. Uh, like I said, when I first recorded it, it was very long. So I've made it into this is now the third part um, of hiking alone and hiking with people. And this is people in tent sites and um, that kind of thing. So let me know how you feel about these episodes. I know they're different from the other ones where I talk to people and talk about more overtly Christian things of sorts. Um, So let me know how you feel about these. If you enjoy them, I still have more. Um, If you say, you know, I kind of just fast forward, let me know. That You can let me know at 12enough at gmail.com. So I hope you enjoy this uh, final part of hiking alone and hiking with people. city. Tent areas were slightly different. When sleeping and camping in a tent, you are a little more isolated and you can keep to yourself a little more. You are not sharing a sleeping space with someone and could claim your own space. Once set up, a tent becomes a monument, a placeholder for a human being. The tent is a monument that may or may not be housing a body, but is stating that a person is claiming that spot and the area immediately surrounding that spot. The tent offers a degree of privacy, separating the person inside from the outside world. The tent sits in the forest, and unless you go up and peek inside or quietly sit outside the tent, listening for someone's breath, you have no idea if there is someone inside the tent or not. And such behavior is kind of creepy and usually frowned upon. It is also frowned upon to set up your tent right next to someone else's, especially if you don't know the person. You need to make space between tents, if at all possible. A tent is a bubble of isolation from other people in the area. You can be in your tent, read in your tent, sleep in your tent, eat in your tent, although that is really unwise unless you want to be visited by bears and chipmunks in the middle of the night, and never talk to anyone else around you. You may be sharing a tent area with other hikers, but there is an expectation that wherever you set up your tent, it will be as far away from others as possible, and people will give each other space and privacy. And if you want to share in conversation, you need to go out of your way to do so. This means the community is a little more difficult to experience. The deep bonds of relationship are not as immediate as the community that is found in the lean-to. 
The lean-to captures the neighborhood of the city block. People are living on top of each other and have to learn to engage, interact, and get along. The tent community is similar to, is similar to the suburban sprawl of the world. We have our houses and stay in our houses, and we will give a polite hello to our neighbors and not much more. There was one time when I was with my kin and my offspring, the family, sleeping in the tent in the Dick's wilderness, and for some reason it was the weekend for everyone else to camp and enjoy the area. We witnessed the fast building of a sprawling neighborhood of tents overnight. People were arriving at all hours into 11 p.m. and later, setting up tents, trying not to trip over tents that have already been set up. By morning, there seemed to be no less than 30 tents in the area, leading me to name the space Tentropolis. I went to bed surrounded by wilderness and woke up surrounded by ropes, zippers, nylon, and metal poles. In the middle of the hustle and bustle of people going about their camping tasks and responsibility, a young man came to us looking for filtered water. His group's water filter had broken, and there were at least seven in their party, and they were thirsty. Water is pretty important, especially for a group that size. As we talked to the young man and filled his water bottles with filtered water, we realized that he must have walked past ten other tents before getting to us. I can't imagine that there was something about our group that was more inviting and friendly than other groups. This made us angry. First, we were angry at the idea that no one else in his group was going to help him procure water. Seven people and only one was asking? We were angry that for some reason he did not feel as if he could ask other people for water or even worse, he asked and was denied. I can't help but wonder if so many of the people staying in tents were closed, isolated, not available to offer assistance. I can't help wonder if perhaps the vibe of Tentropolis was more towards Tenturbia, where each person kept to their own camping areas, set up their own boundaries to such a degree that doing something like asking for water would be crossing some line of decorum, and I had the image of this poor young man walking around the woods with empty water bottles going from campsite to campsite, just standing there looking sad and thirsty and not receiving a modicum of compassion. We offered him whiskey as well and food as well as the water, but he declined. Maybe at that point we were starting to seem a little creepy and not inviting. Tents tend to be isolating fracturing the idyllic community that I've waxed about and over around the lean-to. Tents are great protection of insects, cover for the rain, and seems a natural tool to lead to the fracturing and isolation of the wilderness society. <clears throat> However, despite the isolation, there were at least two times when the experience of the community that had come to enjoy in the wilderness was known and shared across tenting areas. The first was when I encountered the casual family. This family was, very, was a very different family from the crazy family at the Blueberry Lean-To. I was nearing the end of my first day on the Northville Placid Trail, had been hiking in more than the adequate amount of rain, had gone for miles, uh, more miles than I had originally wanted to go. I had passed some camping areas that looked good, yet I did not stop or could not stop, despite the fact that I was getting tired and sloppy in my hiking. I was just on the edge of hiking stupid, making more and more mistakes and getting more tired when I came upon the casual family. Mother, father, son, daughter, and dog. I wonder if there's a rule that all family units must consist of father, mother, son, daughter, and dog. If there is, it seems pretty close-minded to me, and someone should do something to change that rule to open up the wilderness to non-traditional families. 
The casual family was sitting on the side of the trail, and they looked miserable. The son was at the point of crying. The daughter was trying to keep track of the dog. The father was looking overwhelmed, and the mother was trying to calm the son. They were not happy campers. I, on the other hand, was thrilled to meet another human. I had been alone all day in the rain and longed for good conversation, and I was glad to find an excuse to stop hiking. After we exchanged basic pleasantries demanded by civilization, I asked where they were headed, and they admitted they did not know. Everyone looked tired and falling apart, and the father said that he was hoping to find a place to stop for the night. I admitted that I also needed to stop and suggested we backtrack the quarter mile to the attractive pine needle covered campsites that were beckoning and inviting and call it a night. As it turned out, a big part of the difficulty for the casual family was that the son wanted to get a little further down the trail. He was stuck with the idea that he had to get to a very specific place and was not happy to stop sooner and was giving his mother and father a very difficult time. The son needed an outsider to suggest stopping. I, stubbornly focused on making more miles in a day than is ever really necessary, needed a reason to stop. The family was the outside influence I needed, and I was the outside influence they needed. We leaned upon each other for welcome reasons to claim rest. We both set up tents in the camping area, not too close to each other and obeying the rules of tent suburbia, but because of the initial connection we shared, we were close enough to have a common space for our meals. It was in the meal space that the community existed. We slept in our rooms, but we ate together in a common space, and that is where I found community. There's something about cooking together and eating together, even if each person has their own food, that helps create bonds and community. Perhaps there is a level of intimacy that is experienced when sharing the table. Perhaps it is the act of breaking bread, even if we are breaking our own bread, that creates a common space. Preparing our food together, eating together, was just like we were in the same space. The casual family had not been hiking in a long time, and the father had not planned out the meal with the same precision that the more worn and experienced hikers might have had. And as he and the mother worked to cook in a, an elaborate meal of macaroni and cheese made from scratch, uh, sometimes a craft mix is just the better way to go, I was able to cook, eat, and clean up, all while enjoying good conversation. While the mother and father were working on the meal, the children were starting to get a little more than restless, and the restlessness of the children increased, and as it did, the aggravation of the parents increased. And with the increase of aggravation was a decrease of community, the rise in tension, and the risk of my wilderness experience being being negatively impacted. A father can be without his children, but he never ceases to be a father. With the parents' approval, I managed to come up with some distracting but still safe activities for the children involving sliding in once behind down pine needles down a hill. The parents said it was very selfless of me to interact with the children to keep them engaged, but deep down I helped out because I disdained the sound of whining children and I want to avoid tension and conflict at any cost. I remained the selfish bastard that I always thought I was. When their meal was ready, I had some tea and enjoyed conversation with a casual family while they ate. The next morning, as I was getting ready to go, I had breakfast cleaned up and packed up all my gear before most of the casual family had even woken up. We exchanged our gratitude for having met each other. The father was thankful for my presence, helping them all make smart decisions to stop hiking for the day and for spending time with the children. 
I expressed my gratitude for their presence. The casual family helped me decide to make the smart decision to stop hiking for the day, and I really enjoyed the time spent with all of them. When I left, I realized that we had not created a small hamlet of two tents, separate and distant, but instead a home where, for even a brief amount of time, we were able to share and enjoy each other's presence and experience the wilderness together. The tents afforded just enough space for each of us, but the common area brought us together in a way that was good. The second positive experience with a tent community was when I was hiking the Colvin Range at one of the designated campsites just off the Gilbrook Trail. There was a campfire circle with logs for sitting and plenty of space for tents. When I had arrived at the site, it was still morning and no one else was there. I had picked my spot before I left for the, day, for the hike of the day. This was the day I encountered the mother bear with her cub. That night, there was no one else around, and I had supper as well as breakfast in solitude and in the rain. There's nothing like sitting in the rain and eating your supper while you're all alone. It's a special kind of isolation and sadness that one finds eating while the drops fall upon you. You really are alone. Rain kept even the woodland creatures from visiting, and I was starting to think that I would not meet anyone at the campsite. The next day, I set off for more hiking, leaving my tent set up, claiming my area. When I returned from my day's hike, there were four other tents set up in the area, but no one around. I decided to not be creepy and lurk around the tents to listen for any signs of life. In time, people started to arrive, and slowly, a community began to form. The experience started with the suburban tentscape feel. We were all keeping to our own areas and doing everything we could to not bother each other, but every now and again casting a glance at each other like a neighbor looking from her lawn to the other. Yet when it was the meal time, the sense of the community once again evolved towards a feeling of sharing a home with separate rooms. We sat around the campfire circle, no one bothered to make a fire, and swapping stories while eating both supper and breakfast. The conversation and community was good. During the conversation, I got to know one of the hikers, Techie. In our chats, he proceeded to tell all of the best gear that I needed to purchase, that I needed to the most up-to-date boots, that I should have a different brand socks, and on and on. He seemed to have a sense of what was best for everyone and suggested that any gear of less quality should not even be in the woods. A, ser- a serious hiker would never carry your I- items of lesser quality. It did not take me long to start to get very annoyed with this individual. Was he really suggesting that I was not a serious hiker? The more he told me what I was doing wrong and what I should be doing differently, the more I wanted to go back to my room, my tent, or to leave the tent site altogether. I tried to pivot the conversation to other other people. I attempted to bring in more voices, and that helped, but only to a degree. I was encountering friction of the community. I really did not like Techie. The next morning, as I was getting ready to hike out, I started rolling up my tent. Because of all the rain of the previous two days, the bottom of my tent was covered with leaves and sticks and was dirty and filthy. As I rolled up my tent, I did my best to brush away the leaves with my hand, which worked once and then just moved dirt around. Techie asked where my pack towel was, suggesting that I should use my towel to clean off my tent. I sighed, knowing that next he would tell me that the right kind of towel I should have and should use. I grumbled that I had already packed my towel and that my hands were fine. Here, use mine. Techie actually 
offered his towel for me to use to wipe down my tent. He offered his clean, pristine towel, insisted that I use it, and did not flinch when I returned his towel to him full of dirt and grime. After putting the tent away, I was taping up my ankles before putting on my boots. I had been struggling with some chafing. I had some tape, but not a lot, and Techie asked if I had KT tape. I'd never heard of such a thing. It was waiting for me to tell me how and why it is the best tape you could hike with and how I had to get some if I was going to be a serious hiker. He did not say anything of that, but went to his gear, found two strips of a very stretchy and very adhesive tape. This is KT tape. Use mine. I wondered if we had the same size feet, that if we had the same size feet, if he would have offered his boots so that I would no longer have to wrestle with the chafing. He saw needs and hurts and did whatever he could to help. Despite what I saw as an arrogant and annoying behavior, Techie was someone who was actually generous and kind. I was humbled. I have to wonder that if we did not share the eating space, if I would have had the opportunity to know and experience someone who is slightly annoying, but who also has such a giving spirit. The community of the tent site is not easy to find and enjoy, but it is there. It can be a suburban sprawl, a budding city, or a home with a shared common space. Tents can offer a place where one can hide and have very little interaction or help to create a space where community can exist. I found that I have to work a little harder to have and enjoy a sense of community among the peoples in the tents, but appreciate it when I do, and appreciate it when others do as well. Community is always a good thing, but the privacy that a tent offers is nice to have from time to time as well. The Village on the Trail There are those I met during the day while hiking on the trail. These are people who I would most likely never see again after the day was done, unless we are sharing a lean to our camping area. We were in the wilderness, sharing the same space and time, but only in that moment. With each interaction on the trail, there was a sense of living and staying in the moment, enjoying the moment, and letting it go when it is over. Each conversation is potentially the last conversation that we will have. Sometimes I would encounter the same group of people throughout the day while on the trail as we would leapfrog each other. On those occasions, as the day would go on and each encounter would incur, the depth of the interaction would increase. We would start by just saying hello and commenting on the trail or the weather, and then maybe the next time ask where we were headed for the day or where we were spending the night. And then we might start to exchange more personal information like how many mountains we had done already, hikes we have done in the past, and maybe where we are from. With each encounter, the level of intimacy would increase, and we would know each other more and more, and would still treat each each encounter as if it were our last. While hiking the Great Range, Babyback and I met the old bros, not actually brothers, who are a group of middle-aged men from Cooperstown, New York, talking baseball jobs and the challenges of being middle-aged men and leapfrogging with them throughout the day. After two encounters, they learned Baby Back's actual age. They thought he was 10. He was actually 14. I learned they were from Cooperstown, and we learned they were just doing the hike for the day. We also learned where they work, how often they made it to the Adirondacks, and favorite foods. This is a lot of information to gather in a short passing conversation, 
but with each encounter, the depth of the intimacy increased. Baby Beck and I also met the dad and sons from Pittsburgh, who were hiking the entire range and as much else as they could with full packs. They did not know that you could leave most of your gear at a base camp and enjoy the mountains with a day pack and one-third of the weight. Dad and sons were hurting as they struggled up and down the peaks with the full weight of their possessions on their back. Every time we ran into each other, they seemed to be looking for a reason to talk, to stop hiking, and just interact. In a happy coincidence, we actually ran into them again the second day and exchanged stories of fog and using a cable to descend Gothic's mountain. I learned that they were fairly religious. They learned that I was a pastor on sabbatical. And when I was on top of one of the mountains praying, they were silent for the full five minutes of my prayer time. I didn't ask for silence and wouldn't think of it, but they offered. It was a very respectful and thoughtful thing for them to do. I believe that the silence they offered was something that only happened because we had seen each other multiple times and a relationship was growing. And yet we still treated each encounter as if it were our last. This is part of the nature of the Adirondack High Peaks. They are not like the Appalachian Mountains, where there is one trail that winds its way through it over the peaks. There is not just one trail that everyone is hiking, increasing the possibility that you will see the same people each day you are in the wilderness. The Adirondack Mountains are in clusters, smaller ranges, meaning people will do a, a group in a day or two and then move to a different area and do another group. With each encounter, you assume that this is the only time you will meet these people because tomorrow everyone will most likely be on different trails climbing different mountains. Each encounter is very likely the only encounter. Only once did I meet some counters on some hikers on very separate occasions. It was another father-son duel. The first time I met them was later in the afternoon when I was hiking up Mount Colden and they were descending. We exchanged a quick hello, discussed the traditions of the trail, and I went on our, and then we went on our way. I assumed that I would never see them again. A month or so later, early in the day, I was sharing the trail with someone who had never been in the Adirondacks before, and while climbing a mountain, chatted with me about the ethos of the trail and people in the Adirondack wilderness. He asked me if I ever see the same people throughout my various hikes up all the mountains, and I offered a resounding no. Later that day, that same day, as I was hiking into the Seward Wilderness, I saw that father and son duo that I'd seen about a month earlier on Mount Colden. Both the hikers and I remembered each other, remarked on how crazy it was that we'd see each other again at a different time, a different area, and both agreed that it was a very bizarre encounter. And then we went our separate ways, assuming that we would never see each other again. The limited and terminal nature of the trail relationship shaped the experience of meeting someone on the trail, impacting the way one shares, speaks, and interacts with others. Knowing that you would never see the person again may actually make you more willing to take chances in talking and sharing and being stupid. With each person, you have the opportunity to be someone different, to speak with an accent, develop a tick, speak like a pirate. Although, please, don't speak like a pirate. This does not mean that the community is surface and shallow. The temporary reality of the trail community emerging out of similar experiences adds to the connection and community. One can get very deep in specific ways in the wilderness without worry around many or any long-term repercussions, and the assumption of community can can underlie such sharing. 
The openness to sharing that I embraced in the transitory community of the trail was not for everyone, but was the norm for most. I did find that some were a little more open to sharing than others and assumed that it was in part due to personalities. I offered to administer personality tests, but did not have any takers. Only once did I see some hikers who did not seem interested at all in talking to someone else. And they were just a bit dickish about the whole idea of being in conversation with someone, offering me one-word answers to any question that I had and not returning the question at all. I'm going to say that they are the exception to prove the rule. There were times when someone would initiate interaction at a level that was deeper than what I may have initially desired. These tended to be times when I wanted to get somewhere, when my mind was on finishing a hike or at least getting to my next destination, and I did not want to take time to chat. Yet because I was raised with manners and because I don't ever want to upset someone, I would stay and engage in the conversation. And in doing so, I found that even if I was not interested in making a new friend at that particular moment, the overall experience was still rewarding. I was hiking up Porter Mountain, the mountain that experienced hikers say is quick and easy, begging the question if any mountain is actually quick and easy. I was looking to make good time that morning because I still had a five-hour drive ahead of me when I was done with the hike and had just finished a difficult couple of days in the wilderness with less than desirable weather, and I wanted to get home to a dry and warm bed. I was not really looking to start a conversation with someone, especially someone who would hike at a much slower pace than I. I would still say hello and be friendly because I'm not a monster, but was looking for what I was not looking for, a walk-and-talk experience of the mountain. I was bounding my way up Porter and said hello to someone who seemed to be taking a moment to catch his breath when he said, well, with a beard like that, you must have been in the woods for a while. I've completely forgotten about my beard, which had about five months of growth at that time and a small nestling of woodland creatures dwelling within. All I can do is smile and explain that I had the summer to hike and climb all the 46 peaks in the Adirondacks and could not waste valuable time shaving. Next came the expected question. Are you a teacher? I'm not sure why it is that we all assume that teachers do nothing during the summer and have all this time to go gallivanting in the wilderness, but that is the most common question that I heard when I told someone that I had taken the summer for hiking. I responded that I was actually a pastor and was on sabbatical and looked to move on. But by this point, I found that I was already hiking with this individual, who I am going to call Coach. Coach was a fine hiker. His pace was pretty good, and he seemed friendly enough, but I really was not in a talking mood. I just wanted to get to the top of the mountain, run over to Cascade Mountain, head back to my car, and then head home. But Coach was not going to be silent. Coach had a story to share, and I partly responded for his his enthusiasm. All summer, when appropriate, when asked, I told people that I'm a pastor. I did not hold back from my vocational identity. I did not wear a clerical collar when hiking or always have a Bible in my hand to lend the question, but I did not try to hide who I am and what I do, and for the most part, the reactions have been pretty timid and mild. Oh, that's cool, is usually the most that I get, and then we move on with conversations to topics such as hiking food, boots, and the weather. It was refreshing that, for the most part, my being a pastor did not seem to phase anyone that I met, nor unduly impact the conversation, except for this one time. This one time. A time when I wasn't really in the mood to talk. 
I tell coach that I am a pastor, and he proceeds to tell me his salvation story. For those who don't know, a salvation story is usually a fairly personal and private story about heartache and conversion. It is a story about one's faith, Christian's faith, and is usually intense and not one that you would normally share with a stranger. It is almost never a short story that is shared quickly. I have yet to hear the salvation story. I decided one day to become a Christian, and now I am one. The end. So here I was, hiking with someone who asked if he could share a salvation story. I wonder what it was about being in the mountains and meeting someone that you most likely might never meet again that would say that it's okay to share a personal and intense part of yourself. Regardless, Coach asked if he could share his story, and again, because I don't like conflict, I agreed to listen. As soon as Coach started sharing, I thought to myself, okay, here we go, it is religion time, let's just get this over with. Part of me was resentful because I was on sabbatical and was not supposed to be working. Listening to someone's salvation story is work for us clergy folks. It is work to listen closely enough to know when to interject the verbal cues that confirm that you are listening, and beyond that, to listen enough to be able to ask good, engaging questions after the story is over. I wanted to just climb the mountain, not open a spiritual therapist's office. Alongside that resentment was compassion. Clearly, Coach had a story, and something more than that had been troubling him and he wanted and needed to share. If he was open to sharing with the first clergy person who passed by his way, especially who looked like me, with five months of beard growth and all, then he must have something that he needs to say. Compassion won the day, and I listened carefully and closely and let the resentment slip, slip away. Coach shared a good story, a powerful story of faith, that was still being figured out and ended with a yearning for advice and direction. He was still searching for a church home, He felt lost, and I believe was looking for some kind of help and direction. He had made a commitment to an idea of faith and a way of living that was not experiencing hope and the life in that commitment. His faith was not feeding him. I could relate, not so much with Coach's story, but with the desire for something more. I could relate with the frustration and the restlessness that one can find in the complacency of faith, and in listening to Coach's story, I could hear echoes of my own. How does one find a sense of faith that is life-giving and challenging and comforting? In the end, I was glad to hear Coach's salvation story. It was the story of someone who was no longer lost, but was not where he wanted to be and was looking for someone to walk with him. It was the story of someone who was looking for a place to belong, a place where he could be challenged and supported in his own faith. I am glad I was able to walk with him up the literal and metaphorical mountains of his faith journey. I gave him advice that I could never give to an employed pastor. Find a church. Find a faith community that will keep you honest, that will push and challenge you and help you and keep your faith fresh and alive. The problem with giving this kind of advice to pastors is that most of us serve a church community, cannot easily switch from one church to another, and in a very real way are stuck with their church. However, I was reminded, even as I was offering my thoughts to Coach, that I could find a group of pastors or people or lay people who I could pray with, read scripture with, who could offer me support and comfort. 
Maybe I needed to listen to myself and find a group of people to be a part of. I was hiking solo at that time. I was unattached and finding myself extolling the importance of community. Near the end of our hiking together, he asked if he could join me on some of my other hikes. He has never spent the night in the woods and was curious about the experience, and I thought it would be a great idea to join me. And while I was glad to be hiking with him, and while I appreciate his story and his overall presence, I felt like that request was crossing the line. I just met this man and was not ready to exchange phone numbers and share a lean-to with him. For all I knew, the whole salvation story may have been a plot to lure unsuspecting pastors to an isolated place, like a lean-to in the wilderness, and then do unspeakable things to them. Not having the time or the resources to run a background check on Coach, I politely declined and we parted ways on good terms. In the entire conversation that we had, I never learned his name or offered mine. What is it that brings me to share so much, to get so personal so quickly and yet never share my name? Why is it that I find I trust someone and willing to engage in personal conversation without really knowing them? If there is an implicit bias that I have when I am in the wilderness, and we all have implicit biases, it is one that seems to assume that anyone who is in the wilderness is decent, trustworthy, the person who wants to talk and share. I would be ready to tell about my reasons for being in the wilderness, my profession, where I am from, my struggles with insects and bears, and not share my name. And was happy asking about their hike, asking about what they did for a living, where they were from, if their parents were still alive, and many other personal bits of information, and yet I would not ask for a name. Not until the relationship seemed to be ending and over did it seem important to share names. When parting ways, the official greeting of society was offered, a name, and a handshake, and then we're gone from each other's lives. This is part of the reason why I've assigned trail names in these writings, so I would never be able to talk so I would be able to talk about the people I met, many whose names I never discovered but who left an impression on me. I hiked up Mount Giant with Buffalo, an engineer from Buffalo, who had just moved back to his hometown. He really loved Buffalo, which was a curious character trait about him. We did not share names until we were going our separate ways. I hiked the descent of Seward Mountain with Marathon Runner. The first thing I noticed was that she was wearing meticulously applied makeup. It never hurts to look good for the flies and gnats and other insects one might find in the wilderness. She was someone who loved to run marathons and had recently moved to Lake Placid. Again, it was only when we were saying goodbye that we shared our names. There was Ultra Marathoner, whom I talked with for 20 minutes about hiking with our children, about experiencing the top of Marcy in different weather environments, about the fears that we face in the wilderness. We discussed how he and his partner were planning on climbing all of the high peaks in one week. We had a fairly personal conversation, and we never exchanged names. There were a number of 46ers and aspiring 46ers who loved to talk about the mountains who would share a conversation on the trail for a prolonged amount of time about different experiences and lessons learned on the trail, and we never exchanged our names. When you meet someone on the trail, there is a drive, a pull to share some of the struggles and challenges of life, regardless if those struggles and challenges are connected to the mountain, but we do not share our names. On the trail, there is a pull to share parts of one's life, to talk politics, but not too loudly, to discuss good writers, to speak about spirituality, 
to joke about the insane idea of hiking in the wilderness, to stop and marvel at the formation of the rocks or quickly passing by woodland creature, but we do not share our names. It is right and good to share life's goals and disappointments, to talk about the challenges at work and struggles with the family, but we do not share our names. Philosophical treatises are offered in the midst of hiking conversations. In the midst of the trees, transcendental practices are offered with sincerity. Detours and lunches are shared. People help each other out getting through the more difficult parts of the trail. Encouragement and celebrations are shared. And still, we never share our names. In the Adirondacks, there is a trail community that is new and different every day, a congregation of hikers who are sharing and struggling together, who may see each other tomorrow or may not, and yet we do not share our names. Unless you are sharing a campsite or a lean-to, unless your community expands the experience of the hike of the day, you don't share your name. On the Appalachian Trail, it is very common to have a trail name. From my limited experience on the Appalachian Trail, part of the reason many adopt a trail name is because you share so many other things at a very intense, intimate, and personal level that your name is something that is yours, that you can hold on to and maintain a level of separation. You sleep, struggle, laugh, and cry with many of the same people day after day, and your name is something that you can hold on to. I wonder if that may be similar to what is happening with the Adirondacks in a much more abbreviated way. You're most likely never going to see these people again, and yet in this moment, right in here and now, you are sweating together, struggling together, and seeing each other in vulnerable moments. If you have nothing else to hold on to, at least you have your name. You do not share your name. This seems to be a rule, a code of the trails in the Adirondacks. In the lean-to, in the campsites, you need to have a level of trust that the person you are sharing a space with is not an axe murderer or worse, and so sharing your name can be a way of developing that trust. But on the trail, when you don't have a home to run into, you don't have a car to isolate yourself in as you travel, at least you have your name. This is a part of the reason why I would give people I met trail names. I never did it to their face, but afterwards in writing and reflections on the brief relationships formed, I would name the people I met. Buffalo or Marathon Runner or Ultra Marathon or the Michiganers or Old Bros or Crazy or Caps all impacted me in different ways, left memories, and I gave not only the hiker but the overall experience itself a name. I want to honor the moment of connection, the relationship that was created in the wilderness and that was strengthened by the wilderness, and that is why I offer the name. As the names emerged in my mind, the person became more real, more shaped, and formed. The name made the relationship concrete. And by the time we were parting ways, the real name did not matter as much as the name I gave the person, gave me, and that became the description, the space holder for the event itself. The person was real with or without the name, but the moment, the interaction, was more than just the person. The names that I gave each person that I have offered these writings are a part of the way that I honor that moment on the trail and how it changed and shaped my experience of the wilderness. The names that I offer speak to the moments, the experience, the encounters, and the new things that emerge from that encounter. The community on the trail was one that would change every day. 
and that would be shaped every day depending on who was there at that time. The faces would change day to day, and with the changes in people came changes in experience, but the trail community was always there. The names would be different, the moments and experiences would be different, yet the community remained the same. The excitement to share stories remained the same even as the stories would change. The freedom to weave one conversation to another remained the same even as the conversations changed. The concern for the struggling and hurting remained as well as the shared groans and joys. There are always variations, always expectations, but the prevailing constant of the community of the trail remains and was a beauty of the wilderness. In the lean-to, among the tents at a campsite or just on the trail, the people in the wilderness remain an essential part of the Adirondack experience. As much as I enjoyed hiking solo, I valued the encounters with the people. As much as I went into the wilderness to find a break from society, I enjoyed the community that I found. The wilderness was a place of isolation, but also a place of deep and valuable relationships. From St. Augustine of Hippo, read on the top of Huff Mountain. Blessed are your saints, O God and King, who have traveled over a tempestuous sea of life this life, and have made the harbor of peace and felicity. Watch over us who are still on our dangerous voyage, and remember those who lie exposed to the rough storms of trouble and temptations. Frail is our vessel, and the ocean is wide, but as in your mercy, You have set our course, so steer the vessel of our life towards the everlasting shore of peace and bring us at length to the quiet haven of our heart's desire where you, O God, are blessed and live and reign forever. St. Augustine of Hippo, Huff Mountain. Trip Summary No matter what, people are going to be a part of the experience. When I am hiking alone, I am aware of the absence of people and my experience is shaped by my isolation. When I am hiking solo, I enjoy those moments when I meet people in the wilderness and have a moment with another person while maintaining my freedom to travel at my own pace. When I am hiking with others, friends or family, their presence is obvious and I am aware of how my commitment to hike with them in whatever shape that may occur shapes my overall experience of the wilderness. I have come to realize that while there are times when I would like to be alone, it is very rare that I desire complete isolation. The connection with people is necessary and at times essential. The anticipation of meeting others as well as as the history of the encounters that I have had to all shape the ways that I experience the wilderness. I carry the memories of others. I live in the moments of conversations and anticipate the conversation. What I have not considered as much in the ways that I encountered and experienced God through the presence of others, as well as in the moments of isolation. As a pastor, I live with an expectation that I am supposed to see God in each and every person, as well as in nature. There is an assumption that I have this special God radar honing in on the divine behind every rock and tree, but I realize that the presence of the divine was not something I was looking for or aware of when in the wilderness. Finding God in the other was not something that was at the fore of my consciousness. 
I have my prayers at the tops of tops of the mountains, and perhaps those were the times that I relegated to God, but otherwise did not make a point to look or be aware of God's presence. I kept the majority of my encounters and experience with God separate from people. It was a personal piety and closet religion. In the people that I encountered, and in a variety of ways that I met them, I found community. I found community in the intimacy of the lean-to, the neighborhood of the tents, and in the village that was on the trail each and every day. By the end of my overall journey, I began to realize that each time I took the first step on the trail, I was taking a step into a place, a world, where there was a community that I had grown to cherish and enjoy. When I hit my wall of isolation, I missed the community and connection of others. That wall of isolation was a moment when I had to break through my own stubbornness and see that I was still a part of the community, even if no one else was with me. At the risk of personification, I would say that I was interacting with the wilderness itself. I was engaging the sun and the wind and the animals just as others were in different places and at the same time. Even as I was eating supper by myself in the drizzle, I was sitting by a quickly moving stream, enjoying the sounds and the views, and in retrospect, I realized that I was not alone. The isolation hurt because I wanted to be with people. I was looking for people, but I was not looking for God. I was not looking for God. I was not trying to avoid God either. God was not on the fore of my mind. My God radar was off, broken, relegated to those prescribed moments on the mountaintops at no other time. And I think I missed something. In retrospect, I realized that I could not avoid encountering God. God was within the community of the wilderness that I encountered again and again in isolation and with others. I believe that God, as God is understood through Christian lenses, is at essence relational. An encounter with one person is an opportunity to experience the presence of the divine in a unique and particular way. In reflection, I realize how the multiple encounters and the shared experience of the wilderness has awakened my awareness of the presence of God in my life, but such an awareness was not immediate. God was with me, but in a way that was more than just in other people and more than just in the beauty of nature. God was with me in the community of the wilderness. With the eight in the lean-to, with the crazy family, with the people I met on the trails, I realized that God was there, adding to the blessing of those interactions. So often we talk about the vistas when we discuss the mountains. We are pulled to recognize the peaks and the rivers and the lakes and how wonderful they are. Yet I saw beauty in the people and in their engagement with the wilderness. I saw beauty in the community and in the sharing and the authenticity and the honesty in the wilderness. And I believe that these are moments when I saw God's creative process actively moving and working and bringing something beautiful to light. Yes, the views were amazing and breathtaking, but so was the community. I would have thought that the people would have been the worst part of the mountains. I would have thought that the people are the ones who are ruining the views, and to a degree, we are. There were obnoxious assholes making noise, leaving messes, and not burying their poop. But the majority of the people I met brought out the beauty of the mountains. The people, the community, was the ground of the beauty of the wilderness. I was not looking for God. I was looking for people. 
I yearn the connection with the people in the wilderness. And in those connections, in the people, I encountered the divine. From St. Teresa of Avila, read on the top of Haystack Mountain. Oh, my beloved, you are so good. May you be blessed forever. May all things praise you, my God. You have loved us so much that we are able to speak of communion between you and our souls here in exile. This proves your boundless generosity and magnanimity, even in the case of souls who are already good. This abundance is who you are, my Lord. You give according to your nature, O infinite bounty. Your works are magnificent. St. Teresa of Avila, Haystack Mountain. Okay, we finally did it. We finally got to the end of my whole section on hiking alone and hiking with people. Uh, I guess I had a lot to say about that. I hope you enjoyed all these three different parts of what if, what was really one big section. I hope you enjoy uh, these alternative episodes where I take a break from talking with someone else and just share my experiences in the wilderness. Uh, still about Christian faith and culture in the modern age, just in a slightly different way um yeah so go for a hike go for a walk go do something go with people go by yourself do do it all if you want to leave a comment about this show or any other show that you've heard or this episode or any other episode that you've heard you can do so at 12 enough at gmail.com you can go to the 12 enough homepage. That's 12enough.com and find the show notes for this episode and past episodes. You can also find show notes for future episodes if you wait long enough. Ooh. Um, and, uh, you know, there's all sorts of other fun stuff on there. If you also would like to, go to Facebook and follow the show at Facebook slash 12enough. And as always, 12 is written out. And again, I want to thank you very much for your time for your listening, and seriously, let me know how you enjoy these episodes. Twelve Enough is a podcast of Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your host was Jonathan Malone, who is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. The thoughts, ideas, opinions, ruminations, moments of pausing, moments walking by himself, moments walking with others, and all everything else that's reflected here or sharing here do not reflect um, his church, his pa- his friends, his family, his denomination, or anything else of that nature. These were Jonathan's own ideas. This is, after all, his podcast. <laughs>